Peace be with you. Well, as you just saw, we are starting a new series next week on the life of David. And I am pumped up, elated, excited uh, to be able to do so. In David's life, we're going to see a chosen leader, uh, a man who was chasing after God's heart, but also a man who was complicated, a man who shows us what biblical spirituality looks like, but also with what earthliness looks like, what it means to be human. And so I just want to encourage you all to make sure you come out for this series uh, starting next week uh, so that we can, uh, we can learn about David's life, a life which ultimately points to Jesus. If you can stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand and turn to Revelations, Revelation 5. As you all uh, may know, if you've been here the two weeks prior, we are in the middle of a, a series in which we have... Uh, tag the blank church, the blank church every week for the last three weeks, we've kind of been filling in the blank uh, with the word and the word that we're going to fill in this morning. is going to be the hopeful church, the hopeful church. Let's look at the first five verses of the book of revelations. Uh, even though we're going to work through the entire chapter, starting at verse one, the precious, authentic, matchless, marvelous word of God reads, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open a scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I thank you for this opportunity to to have your word open, to be standing with brothers and sisters in Christ, um, reading it and hearing it preached and sitting under it. Lord, I admit that I need your help, and that your people need your help. Help us to see your son Jesus even now. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. I chronically lose my keys. I'm the guy that tries to set his keys in the same spot every day, but somehow I end up placing it somewhere that um, I didn't intend for it to be. And so it's a regular occurrence at my house that I am walking around asking people, right when I need to leave, has anyone seen my keys? And it normally starts off with me being very calm, cool, and collected. But then after a few minutes, it's anxiety. And then that anxiety normally turns into me subtly blaming everyone for my keys being lost. I start off with my kids. Did you see my keys? And then it goes to which one of you had my keys. And then I'm looking at Amber. Have you seen my keys? 
I haven't seen your keys. I hadn't touched your keys. And by the end of the whole occurrence, I have anxiety. My mind is racing. What if I don't find my keys? I'm going to be late. And that happened this week. Same story. And then I go to my wife and I say, have you seen my keys? She says, sweetie, I haven't seen your keys. And I said, well, how is it that my keys are always coming up missing? She said, did you check your pockets? Of course I checked my, oh, there's my keys. (laughs) Thanks, sweetie. I'll see you later. The keys, the entire time, were right there in my back pocket. And preferably speaking, I think that this is what the church often goes through. What Christians often go through, we find ourselves anxious. We find ourselves nervous. We find ourselves kind of sweating things when the whole time the, the key is in our pocket. Whether it's news cycles, us getting anxious because of what we see happening in the world, in the news, unfortunately in the church, whether it's the wars and rumors of wars that we hear about, Whether it's things in our own life, as we look to the future and we have questions about our future employment, we have questions about our relationships, we have questions about uh, what does the future hold, we find ourselves often in in a place of nihilism. We find ourselves often in a place of hopelessness. We find ourselves often running around wondering Who's going to save us? What's going to become of the future? Is there any hope? The Bible gives us a resounding yes. But the good news is, is that part of being human, part of being Christian is is dealing with that, that internal anxiety. That we are imperfect creatures, earthly in, in many ways. And sometimes we, we go through times of doubt. And, and God in heaven, he is not looking at us in condemnation. He is not looking at us in, in a way that, that, that says you are condemned, you are not good, you are not right. But no, he looks at us and he sympathizes with us. And I find great comfort in Revelation chapter 5 because it's written by the apostle John. A man who walked with Jesus, a man who wrote five New Testament books, a man who was called the beloved disciple who walked with them for three years, who saw or witnessed his crucifixion and his resurrection. Yet in chapter four, we see that this godly man is weeping and weeping, is crying, is in despair, is, is hopeless. But what we'll see in his text is that John is reminded to take heart because there is one who has taken control of the past, present, and future. His name is Jesus. And no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much confusion there is, he is in control, and that's good news. So the hope-filled church is a church we'll see that encourages each other towards Jesus. That's the first key that we'll see in the text that encourages each other towards Jesus. In verse number one, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writings on both sides and sealed with seven seals. 
In chapters 1 through 4, we see that John is giving a message, a revelation from Jesus. Jesus has just authoritatively proclaimed the word of God to seven churches in Ephesus. And then he tells John to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Come up here and I must show you the future. So now we see in chapter 5, verse 1, that part of what John sees in his vision is God in heaven, and in his right hand there is a scroll. And this scroll has writings on both the front and the back, and it says it is sealed with seven seals. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see the number seven. The number seven represents completion. It represents perfection. It is perfectly sealed. The content on the scrolls is history. It is complete. It is finished. It is done. But in verse 2, we see that a mighty angel proclaims or preaches a message. The angel says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls? Who is worthy? Just imagine this angel's voice is 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 going all throughout the earth with this question, who is worthy to open the seal? And what's interesting about this question is that this is a mighty angel opening. The careful reader must ask, why don't you go and get the seal to open it? You're mighty. But the issue is not one of might. If the issue was one of might, then this angel would have opened it. If the issue is one of might, then David and his mighty men would have opened it. But it's not an issue of might. And it's not an issue of faithfulness. If the issue of these scrolls been opened was an issue of faithfulness, perhaps Abraham would have spoke up. Perhaps Moses would have spoke up. Two faithful men, but it's not an issue of faithfulness. If the issue was an issue of courage, perhaps Esther would have stood up. Perhaps Deborah would have stood up and said, I can open the seal because we are two courageous sisters, but the sisters remain silent too because the issue is not an issue of courage. If the issue is an issue of wisdom, perhaps Solomon would stand up because Solomon is thought to be the wisest man to ever live, but Solomon remains silent. Why? Because the issue is not an issue of might. It's not an issue of faithfulness. It's not an issue of courage. It's not an issue of wisdom. The issue is an issue of worthiness. And so the whole earth is silent because the whole earth knows that no one is worthy to be in control of history's past, present, and future. No one is worthy to take center stage. There is only one who is worthy, and his name is Jesus. And that's what we see in the text. In verse 3, all of the earth is silent. In verse 4, we see John weeping and weeping, the apostle weeping and weeping, the one who saw Jesus heal people, weeping and weeping, the one who saw Jesus defeat death, weeping and weeping, the one who saw Jesus ascend unto heaven is weeping and weeping. He is in a hopeless state. Have you ever been in a hopeless state like John? Have you ever known the truth and still find yourself frustrated and filled with anxiety? 
Have you ever found yourself so down in the dumps, looking at the news, looking at what's going on, looking at the state of your own heart and life that all you could do was cry? That's what John is. And what relieves John of his anxiety is an elder. The Bible says in verse five, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. An elder comes up to John, the apostle. That encourages me. The apostle John has lost sight. He has lost his keys. And an elder comes up to him and says, John, have have you checked your pocket? (laughs) John, John, have you have you looked around? John, look, behold, there is a lion of Judah. There is one who is the root of David. What is this elder doing? He's pointing him to the promised Messiah. He's pointing him to the lion of the tribe of Judah. That, that means the one, the lion represents one who is strong one who is a conqueror. He points him to the root of David. That's the promised Messiah from David's loin who will rule forever and ever. He says, look, here is Jesus. And a hopeful church is a church that people can go to when they are discouraged. And number one, not be told how they should feel. Not not be looked down upon because they are mourning. But the hopeful church is a church that understands our sinfulness and our humanness and our discouragement and our brokenness. And and rather than condemn, we point. And we don't point to trite meditation. We don't point to humanism. We we don't point to, 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 to things like pull yourself up by your own bootstrap or or look harder inside and you will find the answer. No, we point to one whose name is Jesus. But why is John so discouraged? John is so discouraged because he knows that if no one can open the scroll, then history is not in anyone's control. In verses 6, chapter 6 through 16, we see what happens when the scrolls are, is open. If the scroll is not open, the, the martyrs who cry out, Lord, how long will never have an answer. If the scroll is, is, is not open, we... We see that Jesus will never be worshipped by a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. If the scroll is not open, we see that Satan and his armies will never be defeated. If the scroll is not open, we see that Jesus will never be worshipped as the, the, re, the redeemer. If the scroll is not open, hope is lost. But praise God that the scroll is going to be opened by the only one who is worthy. In the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your nihilism, are you, number one, looking to Jesus or are you looking for an answer in someone else or something else? And number two, in, as you live your life, are you aware and sensitive to other people's despair? And when you become aware and sensitive to their despair, do you point them to Jesus? Second, The hopeful church embraces the upside-down king. The hopeful church embraces the upside-down king. Now, notice the contrast between verse 6 and 7. 
In verse six, the elder points John to the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, the one who has triumphed. But in verse six, he says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, enriched by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John sees a lamb looking as if slain. This is an interesting paradox. In one verse, he is a lion. He is the conquering one. In the next verse, he looks as if he had been slain, a lamb. You know, there's a fight coming up next Saturday between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. And now I'm a, I'm a boxing purist. I grew up watching boxing. I took some, some boxing lessons. Me and my dad, we often sparred. I grew up watching Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous, Marvin Hagger. Y'all don't know them people. I know y'all not up on that. All right. I grew up watching boxing. And so when a good fight, I'm, I'm normally excited and trying to figure out which friend is going to pay the money to host the fight <laughs> because I'm not going to spend money on it. So when I heard about this fight, a part of me wanted to be excited. You have Floyd, the money, Mayweather, who is an accomplished fighter, 50 and oh, good fighter, one of the best boxers of our time. Then you have an MMA fighter who is equally, equally accomplished in his own fighting sport. And so part of me wanted to watch the fight, um, but I said, I'm not going to pay for it. I'll wait till somebody else posts on Facebook or Twitter that they're watching it, and I'm going to try to send them a message, say, hey, can I come watch it with you? <laughs> but then I saw how much trash they were talking. And I began to get tempted that I might have to pay for this fight. <laughs> I mean, there's so much trash talking between the two that even though I think it's going to be a, a, a landslide and, and, and Mayweather's going to kill the dude, I'm like, I might have to see this for myself. <laughs> but here's the thing. I can't imagine Floyd Mayweather being introduced in a way that Jesus was introduced in this passage and showing up like Jesus. I mean, could you imagine the announcer saying, in this corner, we have Floyd the Money Mayweather, undefeated, undisputed, champion of the world. Could you imagine Mayweather taking off his robe? And as he takes off his robe, he already has a black eye. His face is twisted. His body is bruised. And he steps to the front as a champion before the fight even starts. Could you, could you imagine that? No, we can't imagine that. When a, when a fighter is introduced, they're all greased up, looking good, all cut up and ready to fight. Well, there's a great paradox in this text because Jesus is introduced as the lion of Judah. Jesus is introduced as the, the root of David. Jesus is proclaimed as the champion who is worthy to open the scroll, yet Jesus is beat up. He appears as a lamb that has been slain. This is the paradox of Christianity. 
that our Savior is both strong and weak. The Old Testament, the lamb was the, the choice animal for the sacrificial system. In fact, the most popular sacrifice was called the Passover of the lamb. In Leviticus, we read about how important the lamb is, that it is the, the blood of the lamb that is used to, to ransom sinners. In God's economy, where there is sin, blood has to be shed, and the lamb was the blood that was chosen in the Levitical system to, to be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. When the text shows Jesus as a lamb, it reminds us that every lamb that was ever sacrificed, that every word that was ever spoken in the Old Testament, that it pointed to this Jewish Messiah who would die and whose blood will be shed so that we, guilty sinners, would be set free. Jesus died our death so that we could have eternal life, a relationship with him. And the text says that then, John says, I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing. How is he both slain and standing? Jesus is majestic. He's royal. He's reigning. He's all-powerful. But Jesus is also a lamb. He's earthly. He's broken. He gets dirty. And a hopeful church is a church that is learning to relate to him as both, as the one who is majestic and the one who is earthly. As the one who sits high and, and looks low and who is reigning on the right-hand side of God, but as also the one who came to earth, who put on human clothes, who, who sympathizes with us in our weakness. This paradox of one who has all power and who is in control, yet who came and who allowed himself to be slaughtered so that we would have a relationship with God. So in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of failed dreams, in the midst of fantasies that never came true, we have a Savior who can relate and who is broken and who is broken because he loves you. Who was broken because you're precious to him. Who is broken and who pursues you. Who is broken and who would never give up on you. Who, who was broken, and yet he, he reigns. Verse 7 says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus is the only one who is worthy. And why is he worthy? Verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll to open the seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation. Why is Jesus worthy? Jesus is worthy because his blood was shed and poured out for people from all over the earth. Samson. Samson was strong, but Samson did not die in your place. Abraham. 
Abraham and Moses was faithful, but Abraham and Moses did not die in your place. David, David was a worshiper, but David did not die in your place. Peter and Paul, they contributed a lot to the church, but neither died in your place. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, whoever you put in a blank, they did not die in your place. There is only one who died in your place, and his name is Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he did it because he loved you. Not because you have it all together. Not because you're good looking or you're accomplished. Not because you're smart and you're intelligent. Not because you come to church. Not because you know how to sing. Not because you can do good works. No, 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 no. Your good works do not please God. The only thing that pleases and appeases God is the precious blood of a perfect lamb. And that lamb's name is Jesus. And that's where our hope is in the midst of turmoil. That's where our hope is when things don't seem to be going our way. That's where our hope is when the world seems to, to be turning upside down. We look to this upside down Savior. Lastly, we see that a hope-filled church exalts Jesus as a diverse but unified body. What a beautiful text we have before us. Verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have been made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands, time ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The hopeful church is a church that encourages each other towards Jesus. The, the hopeful church is a church that embraces the upside down king. Finally, the hopeful church exalts Jesus as a diverse but unified body. Listen to the diversity in this text that's worshiping Jesus. We have four living creatures. These are angelic beings, probably cherubim, whose job and role is to sit around the throne of God and ascribe worship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are involved in this worship, in exalting Jesus. Then you have the 24 elders. These are elders who are there representing the church. They're representatives of the body of Christ. Then we have a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They are all singing this new song joining in with the heavenly chorus because they have been redeemed. They are grateful for what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. 
And then we have creatures from, from everywhere, on land and on the sea and in the sea, uh, singing the praise of Jesus, where they once were silent. When the mighty angel asked the question, who is worthy? Everyone was silent. But when the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the Root of David shows up, now no one can be silent. Everybody worships. And how do they worship? They worship by singing. They sing a new song, a song that is Christ-centered. A song that praises God that he has redeemed people from every tribe, language, and nation. A song that affirms that those who are redeemed are servants and that they will reign the earth. They, they begin to sing, but not only do they sing with loud voices the worthiness of Jesus and ascribe to him wisdom, strength, power, and praise, but we see that they gather together and they, they pray in this text we see the elders and these angels with golden bowls. And the Bible says that these golden bowls represents the prayer of the saints. And they're pouring out these, these bowls, these prayers to this triune God. And the text says that, that it's coming up to, to, to the nostrils of God as incense, as a sweet aroma, which reminds us that when we gather together, to sing, and, and when we gather together as a church to pray that our prayers come to the Lord as a sweet aroma and incense. But not only are they singing, not only are they praying, but they're participating in face-down worship. The Bible says that the elders and the angels, they are on their face praising God for Jesus because of the work that he has done. This angelic yet earthly scene shows us that, that Jesus is at the center of history, that Jesus deserves to be worshiped, that Jesus deserves to be sung loudly to, that, that Jesus deserves our adoration and affection because Jesus has redeemed the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and Jesus is in control of the past, present, and future. Jesus is the center of the world and should be the center of the church and the center of all history. So when I read this in light of white supremacy, when I read this in light of injustice, when I read this in light of the things that are going on in our society, poverty, when I read this in light of wars and rumors of wars globally, when I read this in light of my own insecurities, when I read this in light of my own past and brokenness, when I read this in light of my brothers and sisters' insecurities and stuff that they carry, I can have hope and you can have hope too because Jesus reigns supreme and he has called together the church to move forward this picture in, res in, in Revelation. The church should be a place of hope because the church is a place where the church, the people of God, gather Sunday after Sunday to take the attention off of ourselves and to put it on a Messiah, on a Messiah who, who claims everyone as beautiful and important, as a Messiah who affirms the image of God in every nation, tribe, and tongue, 
as a Messiah who is coming back again to, to make everything sad become untrue. So here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying, Sojourn Community Church, is that as we gather as the church, as the people of God, when we come together, whether in community group or on a Sunday morning, we don't come together as people who are hopeless. And if we find ourselves hopeless, we should come together expecting to be encouraged because we are the church. And where the world is fumbling over issues, we can speak clearly to them and affirm the image of God. We can speak clearly to them and say, we have our own issues, but God has called us to be one new man. We can worship in heartfelt worship to Jesus, knowing that Jesus has redeemed a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. About a year and a half ago, I came to Sojourn. And at that point, when we talk about diversity, our percentage was extremely low. I'm guessing that we've grown anywhere from 15 to 20% in diversity in our body in just a year and a half. And that is encouraging. And we still have a long way to go. And we don't want to be diverse for the sake of diversity. The reason we want to pursue diversity is because God is the God of a diverse church. And Jesus said, you shall know my disciples by the love that they have for one another. When the world is burning with, with hatred and, and rivalry and, and false doctrine and philosophies of demons, we come together as the people of God and affirm each other's dignity. And more than that, we affirm that we serve a Jewish Messiah who died for all people. We don't serve a, a white Jesus. We don't serve a, a black Jesus. We serve a, a Jesus that was Jewish and a Jesus that transcends and calls and whose blood dies for Native Americans whose blood died for Asians, whose blood died for Africans, whose blood died for blacks and whites. And we come together and say, this Savior, he loves and he reigns and he has a plan. And all of history's past, present, and future points to him. And he's not worried about a thing. And he's the one who is slain and yet standing. He is the undefeated, undisputed champion of the world. And people look in at the church and say, how is it that they get along? They, they've got questions, but when they upset each other, they, they're quick to repent and come to the table as a learner. How is it that even though they're so different, they, they've got so much in common? Let me tell you what we've got in common. Number one, we're all sinners. We were born into sin and, and shaped by our iniquity. Number two, the penalty of sin is death. We are all on our way to hell and we deserve God's wrath because we are sinners. Number three, God sent his son Jesus and Jesus wrecked our lives. He turned it right side up. And he did this by grace and grace alone. Number four, that Jesus walks with us every day in the midst of our messiness, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our confusion. He is not some God that is afar off in majesty watching me struggle, but he is walking with me, sanctifying me by his grace, making me to look more like him. Number four, I believe that he is coming back again. And when he comes back again, 
It won't be a white church and a black church, an Asian church and an African church, a Jamaican church and a Native American church. There's going to be one church that's all singing forth his praise, saying you and you alone deserve glory. You and you alone deserve honor. We are the church, no boundaries, no nationalities, a people redeemed. By his blood. What what would that look like for us as a church? What would that look like for us as a church to be sensitive to those who are hurting around us? Not to condemn or try to figure out, but to gently listen and learn and point them to Jesus. What would it be like for us as a church to to worship a upside-down Savior, one who is strong and weak, and and to allow him to transform us to be an upside-down people, people who are both confident and humble? What would it look like for us as a church to value what God is doing in our midst and to see that we have a unique opportunity as every church in this city and across the world has a unique opportunity to affirm the dignity of every single human being and to see that God has redeemed a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue and to joyfully come in every Sunday with an expectation that our worship, our adoration of Jesus will speak to a dying world about a living Savior and we can point to him. What would that look like for us? an urban city, in a multi-ethnic context, to say, Aldi, you're not going to one-up us. My wife likes to shop at Aldi. She always talks about how diverse it is. She's so excited coming home with her bags and her groceries. Like, it was so so much diversity at Aldi. I I don't want Aldi to show us up. (laughs) We've got something more in common than vegetables and fruit. We've got Jesus in common. But in order to become that church, we have to humble ourselves become learners, entering into the pain of others, holding on to Jesus and walking towards him hand in hand as one body and one new man. And every Sunday we gather together to remind ourselves of Jesus. We take bread as Jesus took bread. On the night that he was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Christian, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Our Jewish Middle Eastern Savior took a piece of bread and he reminded his disciples that he is the the bread of, of life And in in essence, in his blood, he reminded them of the new covenant that they have through his blood. And every week we gather together around this meal to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And as we take this meal, we look around and we acknowledge our differences. But more than that, we acknowledge the unity that we have in Jesus. And this meal points us back to what he's done for us, but it also points us forward to a meal that we one day will have with him. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal as this meal is only for those who are in Christ. But rather, I want to encourage you to take Christ, to take Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, to see that he loves you, 
and that if you will put your faith and trust in him, he will forgive you and make you right with him and with God the Father. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. Let's eat.